Hey, what's going on, everyone? And welcome to another episode of Talking in Bits. But before we actually get to the show, I wanted to remind you guys that Talking in Bits is completely 100% audience funded. What that basically means is, is that you will never have to sit through no ads while you're listening to Talking in Bits. And the only way we can continue to do that and have been able to do that is with contributions and donations with great listeners such as yourself. So in order to keep that spirit alive, there's a few ways that you can actually donate to the show. My favorite way is podcasting 2.0 apps. There's a bunch of them out there, but my two favorite are Fountain App and Breeze. And with these apps, it's basically like any other podcasting app. You can subscribe to Talking in Bits. Um, you can load up some sats into the wallet and you can set how many sats per minute you think Talking in Bits is worth or how much value you're receiving from Talking in Bits. You can do this from both of those apps. Another really cool feature in, the, in these apps, these podcast 2.0 apps, is the boost feature. And what the boost feature is, is basically you get to pick a certain amount of sets that you want to send in and you can embed a message inside of that transaction into the show. And what I'm going to do is week to week, the best ones that come in, I'm going to read them and give shout outs here live on the show. So that's another way that you can help keep this ad free um, and keep this content rolling. Uh, if you're not using the podcast 2.0 apps, then you can head on over to talkingandbits.com backslash donate. And there you'll find various links to be able to send in Lightning, to be able to send on-chain, and even a Paynim. So go check out the, the website. That's another way to contribute. And if you're listening to us on the legacy outlets like YouTube, Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, then you could do the good old-fashioned leave a review, share, subscribe. All that stuff helps and helps us float up higher so more people can get this value and more people can get everything that we want to provide to our listeners. So once again, we appreciate you. The only reason we've been able to keep this up is because of y'all, and we want to keep that going for as long as we can. All right, without further ado, on to this week's episode. I also made the case for winning Bitcoin, the quintessence of scarcity premium. Scarcity premium. It's literally the only large tradable asset in the world that has a known fixed maximum supply. By its design, the total quantity of Bitcoins cannot exceed 21 million. Bitcoin is the hardest money that has ever been invented. If you don't have my private key, you cannot spend my Bitcoin, period. And this is the power of Bitcoin. It's the first time we figured out how to create true property that you can take possession of with full custodial rights. Hey, what's going on, everyone? And welcome to another episode of Talking in Bits, where we walk you through Bitcoin bit by bit so we can provide you with the information you need to succeed and persist. Back with episode 77, and I'm actually extremely excited about this episode because my guest here today is extremely knowledgeable on something that I've been extremely curious of. And I won't use extremely anymore because there's a pattern there. <laughs> but Fractal and Crip, thank you so much, man, for giving me your time, especially as I like to tell people who listen to the show, like when you just reach out to somebody, you have no idea who they are. And Bitcoiners are so good with their time, man. So thank you so much for being on the show. No worries, man. I'm extremely happy to be here. We'll roll on the extremely tip here. Love it. Uh, Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> we should go call the episode extremely. <laughs> we got to bro like that. Bitcoin's extreme. That's a fact. Good, good point. No half there. measures. Hey, I love it. <laughs> All right, cool, man. Um, a little bit for the listeners that don't know. Um, so I've been, well, if they listen to the show, they do know. I've been extremely curious about uh, psilocybin specifically, but psychedelics and, and the research that's been happening, but now it's starting to come back. 
and you know what people are experiencing when they go through these trips and what they come back with and everything that we can hopefully get into this conversation. So I just reached out on Twitter and I was basically was like, hey, who's the best person to talk to about this? Um, Hot or not. And shout out to Hot or not for everything that he's going through and shout out to the Bitcoin community for taking care of Hot or not and that situation that he's going through with, with Craig Wright. Uh, but anyways, Hot or not reached out and replied to me and said, you. Right. And then he didn't not only said you, but he linked to the work that, you know, your work that got posted on Citadel 21. And I'm going to tell you right now, good sir, I was blown away by this article. I mean, it is amazing the comparison between the sovereignty of Bitcoin and the sovereignty of psychedelics. But before we get deeper in fractal, please let the listeners know a little bit about you and, uh, and what you do here in general, not just in Bitcoin. Absolutely, man. Yeah, yeah. Thank you again for, for having me on here. Really, I think I'm most well known for my art, my do Bitcoin art. And um, most people know me for that. I do a lot of, you know, promotion of my pretty stuff that I make, I guess. Uh, so yeah, I think that's most likely what people may know me from. Otherwise, if they know me at all, it's from my snarky comments on Twitter. So I think usually that's the two avenues where people interact with me. It's either just through finding me on Twitter or finding my art. So I think that's where the, a lot of that stems from. It was really an amazing honor to get to put that article out in Citadel 21. That was really the first article that I've ever written. That's not something related to my art. So I thought that, that was, uh, you know, interesting for me as a coming out in the sense of just trying to branch out and do other content besides just the visual uh, content. And so, so that to me was really rewarding to both put it down on uh, paper uh, metaphorically and yeah. also the responses that I got you know I kind of thought it was going to be a lot more controversial I thought I was going to get a lot like a whole shitload of a what about isms in my comments like everybody oh well, what about this or what about this or can't you do it without psychedelics and I was just waiting for like the deluge of all these negative comments to come in and instead I got a whole bunch of positive comments and a lot of people that were telling me just like you did that they got a lot of value from it so that was that was really uh, kind of a spin I wasn't expecting, you know, I kind of expected it to be a lot more controversial than it was, but it seemed to really resonate with a lot of Bitcoiners. And I guess that shouldn't surprise me. Um, like you said, just because there was so many connections that are, that are built up between these two technologies that sovereign individuals can use for themselves to kind of better their lives and better their situation for themselves and their family. But it's through this intentional use and a deep study of these things that you really come to benefit from them. Because it's when you have these casual interactions with something like Bitcoin or psychedelics, the media interpretation that you usually come across is very negative or it's filled with misinformation. So it's hard to filter through a lot of the bullshit to get to the real. So I think the people that actually, number one, get interested enough to, to investigate these things and then also take it far enough to go down the rabbit hole where they do a... Uh, like a deep study in essence of it, that those people are the ones that are going to leverage these technologies and really start benefiting from it. And the other thing is that while there is deep study involved, they're very active requirements. So you can't, you can't get the major benefits of these technologies without using them in essence. You know, like I was saying, like yeah. the what about is it's like, Hey, can't you do this without LSD or can't you do this without psilocybin? Can't you get these experiences without them? What about yoga and meditation and all this? And I'm like, no, that's bullshit. You know, like there's no, nothing that's going <laughs> to, no amount of thinking or meditating that's going to give you an LSD trip. You might have a deep meditative experience. You may have transcendental experiences of some kind, but it's going to be have its own flavor. It's going to be something that's different in content, you know, an experience to an LSD experience or psilocybin experience. So trying to equate one to the other is, is misinformation. 
Um, so, you know, that's one of the other things is like, I think both communities, the psychedelic community and the Bitcoin community have a active membership that kind of go against this misinformation because it's very harmful. Uh, with psychedelics, there's all kinds of harms, both from like the psychological to the physical that you have to kind of combat against. And also just the fact that there's illegal illegalization in some places. So there's a lot of fear and uncertainty and doubt about the substances themselves. So someone could come out and maybe get the best mushrooms in the world, but then they take them and they think they took poison or something because they don't know they didn't get it from, you know, the store and it can come with a label saying, Hey, this is 35 milligrams of psilocybin or whatever it is. So that uncertainty just feeds upon itself also with the societal dangers and things like that. So these things kind of stack upon themselves. And um, I was talking with Tomer earlier today and we were saying how these things are almost like a, like a microscope that you can use that has multiple lenses. So like, as you start mm. sliding each new lens into place, you're getting a higher level of clarity and you're seeing additional levels of detail. Um, you know, each lens works on their own, but it's when you start stacking the lenses that you really get into seeing the fine details of this stuff. Yeah. So did that answer the question? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, we, we got a lot to unpack, man. I'm, I'm so happy that you're here, man, because I'm one of those individuals that like always, you know, Chasing sovereignty and and all avenues. By the way, I speak a lot about it on the show. Um, I know a lot of Bitcoiners are looking for that, like that financial sovereignty, that hard money. But like, yes. I also, you know, I've had guests come on and talk about, you know, defense, like weapons, and and that type of sovereignty, not the depending on you know the police defending you, uh, all the way down to having Slim here and talking about like the defense against you know the food industry. So like, you know yeah, that. Yeah, my my connection to like always chasing sovereignty is, is is one of the pleasures I have of doing this show. And then, you know, it was my wife that actually started to, you know, introduce like what she was been hearing about psilocybin specifically. And for the listeners, psilocybin is only a small slice of that pie, which in a second here in Crypt, you could open that up for other people. Um, but that's, you know, I'm just going to go straight to it. Ego death was the first thing that I ever heard from, you know, going into like a trip and coming back that as a, as a person who struggles with their ego often, right, as most men do with testosterone and as most individuals who don't really think about it do, um, something about being able to get a natural releasing way to basically destroy that ego was what caught my attention and made my antennas go up, right? Because I'm like, wait a minute. So like, this can actually happen. And then, you know, you go deeper and you start seeing a lot of different uh, results that are happening for individuals that I, I love how you use the term technology and not just like a drug or something like that. But, you know, the, the, what, what I really want to get out of this conversation, uh, Fractal, to be honest with you, is, is I'm coming from an individual that although I want to experiment with this sovereign technology, um, there's a lot of fear that goes into even trying to experiment with this, whether it's social norms and what people would think. And, and it's what are you going to encounter when you get to that other side? So before we get there, what's your introduction with psychedelics, Fractal? Like when did, were, were you ever on that balance beam that you were thinking like, is this really something I should try? Or did you just try it and then just, you know, continue from there? What, what was your introdu introduction to psychedelics and your first few experiences with it? Wow, there's so much to unpack there. Yeah, but I do want to. I do want to. Before I, I, I guess I should start with my experience with psychedelics. That would be somewhat what useful, I think. Um, yeah. So I, I'd say it's been uh, a good. In, in early 1992, I started coming across a LSD blotter art, and I started. I, I ran into a guy outside of like some little Grateful Dead local shows that they were doing, and he 
show me like the the fact that there was like the art side of the LSD. It's not just like, hey, you know, like the the substance itself, but there's some something deeper. There's like a cultural art thing that's happening early 90s and it caught my attention and very early on I kind of thought it would be really neat to and I guess I'm getting more into the art than the psychedelics so um, I've been into the psychedelics for a long time I, I did a lot of work with uh, uh, LSD in the in the 90s and uh, actually basically that was I did my job is selling LSD for, <laughs> for a long time at raves in the early 90s but um, then like in the I'd say late 1990s I went out to Paul Stamets farm and actually studied with him uh, because I wanted to like learn the mushroom side of it. Because I think right around that time I was just kind of seeing a lot of the people I knew it was like, Hey, there was like a lot of cannabis people doing that. And um, it just felt like that was kind of oversaturated and it really wasn't my, my like deep passion or my deep, like, like need to mission out. Like I felt psychedelics were somewhat of a mission driven thing. Like we're, I just really wanted to spread this message in essence, like this, there was good news here and it's kind of something that was hidden from us. And we were basically lied to in essence, like our whole lives about what these things are and and what they give you access to. So I I was kind of mission driven to project out to the world that this is actually a wholesome thing. It's actually good for yourself, good for your family. It's good for society. It's good for humanity. This is all like um, something that's actually beneficial to ourselves and, and the way that we interact with the world. And, and there's really nothing to be afraid of. So I've been spending a long time in both the psychedelic world and the psychedelic art world. Um, I'd spent before I did Bitcoin art, I did psychedelic art. So uh, I spent a large, large portion of my life, probably up from, like I said, the early nineties to around 2015 where I was deeply focused on that. And I think right around 2017 is when I did my first Bitcoin art. So that was probably the, the bifurcation line because yeah. when I get into something, I really throw myself all into it. So that was like a, a big step for me to kind of move from one realm to the other, but I find they're complementary revolutionary technology. So something like Bitcoin and LSD or psychedelics, uh, like these, these type of things were complementary. So I was still on mission in a sense. So, um, so that's a little introduction to some of that, but I did want to touch on the fear thing that you had said, because I believe yeah. that that's almost an integral part of the experience. So I always say that the rational person has some sense of trepidation going into these experiences. So I think like that sense that you said that you're like a little fear, like that's a healthy thing. Like you kind of want to be somewhat hesitant. A lot of people say when they've taken psychedelics or something, it's one of the most important things that they've ever done in their life. Some of those experiences that they have. So if you don't go into these things with the proper preparation and, you know, respect, then it can be very, Un, you know, unexpected things can happen. So the more things that you can kind of get yourself in line, the better you set yourself up for success in these things. So there's a very deep hero's journey, I think, with the fear that's connected to the psychedelic. So in many ways, some people will be, you know, scared of the experience, so they won't go into it, you know, very often. And that's fine. You know, it's not like everybody has to go in at their, their own paces. Yeah. But I think that it's facing those fears and there's fears of, the psychedelic experience itself and then there's fears of what it brings up in your mind so there's like different levels of like you know hey i'm scared of what it will do to me and i'm also scared of what it will bring up in my mind that i may not want to confront but it's actually like going through these things and what doesn't kill us makes us stronger and you build yourself up so it's like a confidence building thing a resilience that you're building into yourself by going through these things facing your fears going through it not being afraid to like 
put yourself out there because the reality is, is these things don't kill you. They're actually super safe. So it's like giving yourself this hero's journey, this ego death, like you said, where it's like you can actually die, but not die. And that's a, a very deep, uh, old tradition that spans back very many years. It's a kind of a, a pre-Christian idea of dying before you die so that, that, that there, there's knowledge there in understanding and, and not fearing. So I think like facing the fears is something that's integral to the experience, but also integral to the experience of being a Bitcoiner. For example, if you just got into Bitcoin now and you saw like haven't been in it for a while and you saw the price go from 64,000 to 40, to 30, and then you saw the quick drop from 30 to 20, you might, it's a scary thing in a sense. Like you may say, Oh my God, uh, like I'm scared. I'm going to just sell all my Bitcoin. Cause like, what if it goes to zero? Now there's people that have been here since $50, $20, you know, $30, $500, whatever it is that, that that's like a different mental uh, barrier uh, armor that's been built up by, by just all this time in the sure. market. So those people that have seen it go from $50 to 60,000 to 20 to 10, you know, like they understand that these are just the fluctuations of the market and they don't get scared. So there's a resilience that's built up through going through these crazy market conditions that for, for Bitcoiners. And I think like that, there's a, a deep correlation between these two things, facing your fears, facing the fears of these other things. Cause it's the people that don't sell all their Bitcoin when they get scared that benefit, you know? So, and it's, I think the same thing with psychedelics is the people that understand, yes, there are rational fears associated with these things, but um, it's healthy to go through these things, face them and it may build you up as a human. You may come out better on the other side of that. So um, these type of things are worthwhile and anything worthwhile has some risk in it. So, you know, you just have to look at it uh, holistically. I think the other thing you mentioned also, I like to look at the fact that mushrooms are really super decentralized as far as a technology that you can use to go deep into yourself. As far as a psychedelic, it gives you the ability to actually grow it yourself. So for, for the sense of LSD, most people cannot go ahead and set up an LSD lab and make it in the, their home and, you know, an easy way where they're going to be able to like have what they know is pure and hundred percent good because they made it themselves. However, most, almost everybody that's listening has the ability to grow mushrooms. It's like stupid, simple, like a fifth grader can basically do it. It's like, <laughs> I I've actually, I used to run a mushroom farm where we taught farmers and third world nations how to grow, um, with zero waste system. So if you were growing different crops, a lot of times they would produce um, wastes or byproducts where, for sure. example, if you're growing wheat, you end up with like a whole bunch of straw chaff that basically you give it to the, the animals to eat. There's nothing really you could do with it. Sometimes they burn it. Uh, now this is a method that people can use and turn it into, we were doing like oyster mushrooms, reishi, stuff like that. And we would send them the cultures that would work in their climates. And you know, they're able to turn trash into food and medicine. So this is a super powerful thing. And then for the, in the same way, people can use this to tra transform. It's almost like alchemy in a sense. You're transforming these materials into a substance of gold by, by taking like these base materials, using them as a substrate to grow the mushrooms on, and then spending that time with the mushrooms, like all this like time that you're spending preparing the substrate, growing them out, like watching them grow, seeing them come up, like all this is time that you're contemplating the experience. So it's almost like this fear that you're talking about. Sometimes like, Oh, you have the spur of the moment thing. Like, Oh, my friend gave me this at a party and I just did it. No, it's not like that at all. You've fully committed to this and you've nurtured it from the, the, the sense of a pure potential energy into the kinetic energy of life. And actually like, it's now going to give you back something. It's just a super deep thing. And that's very, 
It's just like being able to run your own Bitcoin node. You fully take care of the entire experience. It's like fully sovereign. You're, you're basically carving out this thing. I, I'm creating my own supply for, my, for myself, my friends, my family, whatever it is. And we know that this is good. And we did it ourselves. Yeah. All the comparisons <laughs> you got back and forth were amazing. A, a, a beautiful one is the low risk of, like us Bitcoiners know when it comes to, you know, newer Bitcoiners may be extremely nervous about, you know, saving their money and their time inside of Bitcoin because they think it's risky. But it's actually the safest way to do so, right? Because you own your own right. private keys. Uh, same thing that you're just explaining there. Like you can, you know, get into yourself. You can get medicine. You can get food. And this is actually safe for you. This is probably the less riskiest way to get, if not the only way to do so. So those yeah. comparisons are, are extremely amazing there. Um, it, you know, it, and this is probably a home run, a softball for you that you can knock out the park. But like you said that you were on a mission to show, you know, that this is something that's been kept from us. This is something that can, you know, solve problems. And so w what would you say if somebody from like the cannabis side of things said, well, we have that same exact mission and we can do the same thing? Well, I'm fully 100% in line with the cannabis mission. I'm just like, I'm just saying that I think like, to me, it just felt like, like that, like it brings you to a certain place, you know, yeah. cannabis. And, and I think all these things have their appropriate place and time, to be honest. Like, I think like psilocybin is dramatically different than LSD It's dramatically different than like mescaline, these type of things, even though they're all like psychedelics on one level, they each have their own character and they they're not necessarily interchangeable in the sense that at low doses, they're going to seem relatively similar. You're going to have similar types of distortion of, of reality and similar types of, of things because they're, they're, they, their characteristics don't express fully at those lower doses. But as you like increase the doses, it becomes much more noticeable. And to me, um, I find it dramatically different between the two experiences. And I find like they each have their appropriate place and time, for example. So uh, like mushrooms tend to be very nature oriented for me. Like so if I'm out in the forest, like a lot of times that's like, it seems kind of right in essence, it will fit, fit there. Um, and I kind of feel like mushrooms in a sense, I like to say they're, they're paisley, they're amorphous. They're like a, a moving, like a moving colors that, that, you know, just, there's, there's not a lot of structure or form to it, but it's like an ever, uh, an ever evolving, ever blooming type, type um, experience or visuals, whereas LSD is very mathematical and precise. And, the, and they're, it's like, like highly patterned geometrics and things like that, that are, that are highly ordered, um, which is a, a stark contrast to that, that wavy amorphousness of, of mushrooms. So, um, and they're both, they're both life-changingly powerful at those higher doses too. So it's, it's a very fine, distinction and there's a lot of nuance here so i think like um there's a lot of ground to travel within these things so um i certainly think that cannabis is not going to bring you to the places that these other things will but also these other things you know any psychedelic will not bring you to the places that the other ones will as well so there's a bit of filtering and uh, you know carlos castaneda when he had the the, uh, the books of magic he was calling the different uh, plant teachers for the uh, shaman that was learning from the, the Mexican uh, traditions and they were calling you to the different plants like allies. And, and, you know, they were saying like some shamans, like there's a whole bunch of different ally plants and you kind of pick yours and the one that works for you, you're able to, to use that. And I think that's true with psychedelics today. Although I just don't think that while there is a huge variation of what's available due to um, just this, the current state of chemistry in the market and also even Bitcoin enabling like dark market sales and stuff that like, just puts a wide range of, of psychedelic chemicals and plants available to the psychonauts out there. So there's a lot to research and look into. Uh, however, I think there's also value in filtering because there is so many of them that 
uh, I guess I've gone through both stages. I, I, in the early 90s or mid 90s, there was kind of the dawn of the internet. And one of the very first things that I found was kind of like the fact that you could buy research chemicals online from countries where just like they just had labs set up and you get 99% pure this or that DMT or whatever it was. And it was, um, you could just get these things over the internet. And it was just a, a, a whole learning period I did trying to find out what these are, what they do, how the different molecules fit together and how like there was something called AMT, which is alpha methyltryptamine. Mm-hmm. And it, a lot of people are familiar with dimethyltryptamine. So it's just a very small molecule tweak on that. But the experience is like dramatically different, like not even in the same ballpark type thing like a, the alpha methyltryptamine was something that would last like 24 hours and it was very similar to um, different psychedelics at different doses like sometimes it would feel like MDMA or sometimes LSD but it had its own body load for example like it did uh, some people would get sick sick um, early on in the experience like right it's, it would hit they would have uh, stomach pains or something like that and throw up so there was you know everybody has different reactions to the side effects that, that are involved. So I think things like psilocybin and LSD have very low side effects in terms of what's out there. So while yes, there's a whole bunch of weird, interesting things to test out, you just have to understand that there's some tried and true paths that people have used over a long periods of time. And there's reasons for these things that, uh, that may lead you to try to follow these same paths that have already been blazed. There's kind of a reason, um, I believe, for, for that. And there's a lot of value in just kind of staying on those paths. Um, like I said, there's certainly nothing wrong with deviating that and following your own path. You may find this something that works better for you. This is just for me, what, what, what works for me and kind of the way that I've, I've done it. When you were to go back to the history, um, you know, and you could go as far back as you're knowledgeable and um, what are some, some good examples that you provide people if they ask you how humans were using psychedelics like before the modern age? So this is actually something that I've been into for a long time. And I think we have a very deep uh, and long psychedelic history that, that goes back a very much longer than people realize. And it, it's much deeper entwined into our culture and, and everyday living than we, we actually realize. Um, I think mushrooms go back before we can even probably record any kind of history that the connection between humans and, and psychedelic mushrooms goes back so far that it's, it's not even recordable. You know, like we've been doing the, I mean, Terrence McKenna has the stone date theory where he even posits that, you know, it's possible that psilocybin was what helped bring us out from the plains of Africa as, you know, Neanderthals and, you know, wow. kind of refined our minds into like the, the experience of coming into contact with psilocybin was actually what gave us the consciousness forming, language forming, religious religion forming, these, 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 these epigenetic phenomenon that occur due to um, the mind stimulation of psychedelics. So, so mushrooms, I think, go back to, to, to the beginning of what we are. Um, but I think LSD does too. And I think this is one of the really neat hidden secrets. So this is something that, that I've kind of taken a deep interest in myself because I don't know if you're familiar with the bicycle day story from LSD. It's the, uh, the origin story of LSD where, uh, the original chemist that, uh, created it, he, in 1938, they created it or he created it as a, as a chemist named Albert Hoffman. He supposedly created it in 1938. And then they basically just tested it on some mice and it didn't show any kind of interest there. So they just put it on the shelf and we're never going to think about it again. And then five years later, he was just at lunch and he just had this peculiar presentiment and he thought, Oh, maybe I missed something in that, that molecule that I synthesized five years ago. So he resynthesizes it. And during the process of resynthesizing it, 
a little drop gets on his hand or gets on, you know, gets on him somehow. And he actually feels the effects a little. And, um, then, then a day or two later, he goes back into the lab, resynthesizes it and purposely tr- takes some because he thinks like maybe that was what made me feel weird the other day. So, you know, he try, you know, he tries it and he tries a 250 micrograms, which a normal dose of LSD is between 50 and 100. So he's kind of like up by, he's like doing a relatively large dose for the first person in history to ever experience it. And then he is shocked by like the way that he's feeling. And he says, you know, maybe I need to maybe I need to go home. And, uh, so he, it's 1940, they don't have cars. So he gets on his bike with his lab assistant and they bike to his house. And the story is that it just seemed like the bike ride just took forever. You know, he's trying to bike home and it's just the harder that he pedals, he doesn't feel like he's going anywhere. And so this is the story that we're told about how LSD was created. And then once he had these experiences, then Sandoz, which is the laboratory that he worked for, started distributing it to psychiatrists and other type of, um, other type of professionals, medical professionals to try to find out what this is exactly. And then of course the intelligence agencies got very interested in this stuff and there was a lot of cold war things going on. So the, the whole history of LSD and the 1940s and fifties, you have to look at it through a cold war lens. So there's a lot going on between the U S and the KGB um, and the Russians in essence with, with uh, this weird, like new, psychological warfare tools that they have. So in essence, I think that the whole bicycle day story is probably a fabrication. It doesn't make sense in many different ways. Like the fact that, you know, they invent it in 1938 and then put it on a shelf. And then like five years later for no apparent reason, you decide to like make it again. And then during this process, you happen to get a little bit of it on yourself. And like, it's like without all these weird coincidences that we're expected to believe, like the story just doesn't hold water. In which case, again, it's like, the whole history of like LSD that we got is basically mass. And then you have to say, why is that? And so we, as far as we're told, 1938 is the first time that anybody has ever synthesized LSD, but there's this book called um, St. Peter's Snow by an author named Leo Peretz. He was a very famous author in, in Germany in the 1930s. So in 1933, he wrote a book, wrote this book called St. Leo's Snow. And it actually talks about the very, if you read the very first paragraph, um, and, and I did, it sounds like a psychedelic experience. And there's not even supposed to be any kind of psychedelic that exists. And he basically outlines the fact that they think that there's an ergo based psychedelic that if they do some work in the lab that they can create this, this psychedelic. And pretty much that's exactly the way that you would, uh, five years before in 1933, they have this whole thing that laid out. And, um, and he talks about the fact that this knowledge was carried down of the psychedelic ergo, you know, potions or whatever you want to call it. You know, yep. that, that knowledge was kind of held for many years and Kings and kind of passed down um, until all this stuff is going on in Germany and there's actually an anti-Hitler movement. And some of these people that are involved with the LSD thing are trying to like overthrow Hitler. And a lot of them actually got found out and then murdered by the Nazis for that. Um, but they were saying that some of this knowledge may have been obtained through the order of St. Anthony's fire. So this is back to, I think the 1600s or something like that when they had uh, wheat, wheat stores that weren't really well, like the, the way that they stored wheat wasn't a very, uh, proper way so it would get mold and fungus and things like that so they would get ergotism and ergo is the natural source from which lsd is synthesized so hundreds of years ago these people would be eating the bread that would be laced with this stuff and the poor people would be the ones eating this and they would go crazy and so the order of saint anthony is the one that basically was treating 
the victims of the ergotism in this time. So those monks were very deeply familiar with this substance and maybe the fact that like it's dose related, like at a certain dose, it's poison, but maybe at a lower dose, it's magic. So I think there's a lot of deep history that goes back very far. So that's like going back hundreds of years that there may be some weird LSD history that's kind of hidden and um, possibly real. And, um, and then there's a guy named Dan Merker. He wrote some very interesting books on how like he thinks the manna from the Bible may have been an ergo based psychedelic. Mm. And he has all kinds of archeo archeo ethnobotanical research where they're actually like looking at vessels that they, they found in old historic sites and, and testing them. And they've actually found some ergo remains in certain sites. The old Eleusinian mysteries also were something that was supposed to be possibly an LSD um, ritual that was, that was done for 2000 years before uh, Christianity really took, took hold in the early, uh, you know, early ADs. So some of this stuff I think has been going on so long. I actually heard a spaces one time where somebody was talking and said, Oh, I would never do LSD because there's no, there's no like long history of it. We haven't been doing that for, for uh, <laughs> any, any amount of time in our history. I, I would never do it because of that. Like it doesn't have any, you know, it's like mushrooms UK, you know, people have been doing this for a long time. He felt like safe with that, but he felt LSD just didn't have the, the the historical backing which if you look at things in a span of okay if it was created in 1938 still at this point we have almost 80 or 90 years of research which is pretty solid considering the amount of people that have used lsd every weekend for you know all these all these decades that gives you a pretty good uh, basis but if it actually goes back not only to the 1600s but all the way to like the time of moses and even before then there's something going on here and and also there is some deep historical uh, tradition of use. And I just think it's, it's undiscovered and, and purposely. So uh, I think the bicycle day story, the whole origin story of LSD is, is purposely misdirecting us for some reason. I don't actually know what that is. Like I, you know, I have my conspiracy hat on as much as I can, but I try not to go like too super duper far, but <laughs> it's just like, I don't know what this all means, but I feel like it means something. It's like, I found all these breadcrumbs and I'm trying to put it together. So it's something, even in my article, I mentioned it. I said, you know, this is something that I'm working on. I'd like to do another article later on, on like, like what, like why, what the heck is going on here? And why are you hiding all this from us? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely fascinated by all that stuff. All right. Fracto, how much of, you know, and this is a, a, obviously your opinion question. I don't think there's any way anybody can answer it. So, with all that being said about how far back uh, LSD potentially goes, how much do you think religion itself is derived from the usage of psychedelics and LSDs and different types of things? A good example that I've heard along the way, probably on a Rogan episode or something, I don't remember, but like what's the whole like Moses in the bush, you know, story where it's sure. like it could be the possibility that Moses was just fucking tripping. <laughs> yeah. Um, when he saw this, what he thought was supposedly God inside of a bush giving him a sign. So in your opinion and in your, you know, from what you know and what you gathered, how much of religion do you think derives from psychedelics? I'm going to say a huge amount of it. And I know this is like super controversial to, yeah. to be a, a, in these type of places, but um, I just think that now it's a lot less controversial there. I gave you the example earlier of Dan Merker. He's done some extremely well-researched uh, scientific um, explorations of 
the connections in the past. And like I said, they were even doing um, excavations of the physical vessels and materials they were finding in these archaeological excavations and, and, and testing them and seeing like what the heck is in these. Uh, they even found some human remains with some ergo in it in a, in a temple setting um, and, 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 you know, ancient, ancient Israel. So, um, so Dan Merker is one um, interesting scholar. The thing is, is he's a, a little bit older in the sense that I think his m more recent works were uh, published in maybe 2006. Um, and I think he had another one in 2013. So there's not so much of him online, but there is a, another author more recently called Brian Maresco, I think. And he did, uh, he did a, a recent book and I think it's called the tree of life or elixir of life or something like that. I'll have to, uh, I'll send you it later so you can put a, a show link uh, later, but uh, his, his work is, is very accessible online. You can find a lot of his talks online on YouTube and it goes back. He, he's mostly focused on the history of, of Christianity. Um, so I think it goes back much further than that. Like I said, I think it goes back to Moses and the Israelites. So if, if so, that's basically, you know, I don't think we have older known religions. You know, you have the indigenous cultures with, with the tribal things that may not be as, as well known uh, that might be older, but I think, you know, going back that far is pretty much as deep and as old as you can get. And I think like, Dan Merkers talks about um, the mana and the ways that that was described and the way that it actually worked and the way that people collected it and it almost said like when they would go out they would collect to each person they would collect the amount that they needed for themselves so it's like some people with these psychedelics like some people would need more some people need less so it's like to each they would go out and collect the the amount that they could and at some points it becomes uh very plentiful where the whole tribe can experience this and, and everybody's getting this direct experience of the psychedelic. And um, the fact is not everybody's geared for that. So that causes a lot of psych, uh, that causes a lot of social, uh, social things to happen as well. Um, so I think some, to some degree, like there's a little bifurcation where some people say, Hey, maybe some people do and some people don't. And then you have also the, the times of plenty and the times of, of famine, it just history where sometimes things will be plentiful and then other times they're, they're not. So when things are plentiful, everybody has the chance to experience it. But when they're not, then you have a situation where you have a, a priestly class developing where they, they are the ones that use it because not everybody can get it. There's not you know, enough for everybody or whatever it is. And then those people have the experiences and then translate it to other people. Uh, now the Brian Marescu work, which I said is much more recent and, and there's even an audible version of his book. So you can get you an audio, listen to it and see uh, talks from his on on youtube and he talks a lot about how christianity birthed out of that those eleusinian mysteries so this 2000 year culture of people doing some kind of trip they would do some kind of pilgrimage once in your life you go to eleusis it's a very closed off thing nobody can talk about what happened in there it's like a secret that's lasted 2000 years we really don't have any direct knowledge of what was going on in there what the ritual was what what was composed of and it was actually penalty of death in those cultures if you discussed what happened at the Eleusinian mystery. So um, it's a secret that has lasted that long. But once in your life, you get to go, you experience this thing every year and like clockwork, they're initiating this, this life-changing experience for people. And there's just not many things like meditation or drumming or chanting that are going to reliably bring a large amount of people to an ecstatic experience like something like a psychedelic would do reliably. So there's just a lot of evidence that these cultures have existed for a long time. And then those started getting repressed. So, you know, with the advent of Christianity, they looked at some of these things like the Eleusinian mysteries as, as almost a challenge to the, the sovereignty of, of their, uh, you know, 
ethnocentric beliefs and stuff. So it's basically like a challenge to them. So there's like paganism um, also that's basically deeply connected with plant magic and things like that. So that's also direct challenges to Christianity. So a lot of that was like banned and wiped out and suppressed. So even though it's like at the heart of what was going on in the early, early uh, human civilization development, a lot of it was so firmly suppressed that just, you know, now thousands of years later, we have trouble disambiguating exactly what went on. But the fact of the matter is if there was something so special like that, and there was knowledge of these things, there's probably a group of people that preserved it and carried that tradition on through time. And I think that those people are somehow related to the advent of LSD. You know, a lot of people say like LSD came in 1943, it was released in 1943 and, and almost like um, in response to the fact that the atomic weapons were being created at the same time. So it was like, you have this weapon of love and, and, um, and, and I do like to say LSD is neutral. Like it doesn't cause love or spirituality for people that kind of arises from within you. If you get it, like LSD is a very neutral thing, you, you know, the variations and the weird stuff that happens, it's more our personal body chemistry. So I think, think that covers my thoughts on that, but I think it's, yeah. it goes back. I think it basically is everything. And I think the fact that today we don't get that direct connection is actually a little bit of a, of a tragedy. And I do think that that taking back that direct experience of the, the divine is more in line with what I would hope religion to be is something that you could, you know, touch the divine yourself and, and make your own interpretation of what that is for you and, and your family and your life and not have to hear it from a priest or hear it from some, uh, you know, a shaman or hear it from somebody who's telling you what to think and what to feel, and what to believe for yourself. I think that's like the very key to a sovereign individual is, is not allowing people to mediate your experience with reality is you, you need to go out and experience life by your, you know, by yourself and see yeah. what, what it is. Don't, don't let someone tell you what it is. That makes it makes a ton of sense when you when you know when you break it down like that from like the you know the challenges of you know the Christianity that it was facing all the way down to you know the 1940s and you know what you know I, I always like to generalize the Fed I know the Fed is a lot of different things but what the those higher ups were trying to do and I'm gonna take a line here from your writing where you say um, the truth is these walls of propaganda surrounding Bitcoin and psychedelics are built to deflect people from seeking self sovereignty. Compliant, unquestioning people are much easier to control than individuals standing up for their liberty. Um, that's a very important line there and kind of nails in the point that you're trying to make there. But, you know, is this as simple as someone more powerful than you, whether it's, you know, the, 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 the Christianity movement, whether it's the Fed now, wants to stop you from having power? Or is it much deeper than that and much more of a strategic thing for them to keep you away from this powerful technology? I think there's levels to it. And, and I think that um, a lot of times in life that it really it comes down to following the incentives. And incentives for people come down to a very few things, many times money and power. And if you follow the incentives that are aligned to these things, religion, um, and I wasn't just saying Christianity, I think it's all, all religion like sure. is, is a power structure uh, that that keeps people in line. It gives people order. It gives people meaning. It gives people um, um, a, a set of, of, of values and beliefs to go through. So it basically, it's like the easy button on so many things. And it's by many people just choosing to go to go that route and being like having somebody kind of spoon feed them this, you know, their spirituality. Uh, you know, you you give up the sovereignty to actually define for yourself what what that may or may not be. And um, 
I think that's a very dangerous game to play. So I think like there's incentives involved in control um, because like there's a lot of control that can happen through both, you know, the religion and the political spectrums, you know, just po- like, cause, uh, like there's, there's all these different systems that are being leveraged in different ways. And I think there's some, some bit, like I said, in the article there, that, that quote that you gave where there's a lot of purposeful misinformation. And so that, that's extremely uh, dense to pick through. So with Bitcoin, you have a lot of purposeful misinformation that's either like narrative driven, which is actually government's kind of saying like, Hey, it uses too much energy and, and there's, you know, it's this and that. And it's like uh, a dangerous to our economies because, you know, they actually see w- what these type of things are. So like, there's actually some fear response that they, they want to kind of repress and keep people away from that. But then there's also like the shit coiners out there that just want to like benefit themselves. And then, you know, the same thing with like religious charlatans, like you have those people, like the, the TV evangelists that would go on and they just like, okay, they're making money by, by yeah. selling you this the version of something of the world <laughs> yeah man it's like you know there's basically selling you this version of of like total bullshit and like right. wrapping it up for you and people just go like they just give everything to these you know these charlatans and so so the, those people's incentives are again they're the same they basically want power and they want money you know and the power that they get through that is you know they they get the dopamine hit of controlling all these people like you know the television evangelist it's not like mental control you're not like mind controlling these people which you are creating an inception in in the sense of basically planting ideas in people's minds which is even more dangerous like instead of like telling somebody what to do you make them think it's their idea um so i think there's a lot of purposeful deception and i think in most cases it's it's not that there's some worldwide conspiracy out there to keep us down and like um it's actually i I like like terence mckenna says you know it's he thinks like there's no one in control. You know, it's not that like there's some grand conspiracy where everybody's like, you know, plotting everything down to the last minutia. It's like, no, it's like this, this shit's just so out of control that, you know, nobody's got their foot on the brakes. You just have to use your, you, you know, your mental acuity to define what's, what's worth spending your time in and looking at because there's so many distractions and so much like layers of misinformation and bullshit that you have to, you know, sift through to even get to anything real. I mean, just think about all the programming they throw at us every day and, you know, just the, the, the types of content we're fed to consume our time and what value that actually brings to your life. And I just spend a lot of time <laughs> thinking about what to avoid, you know, like what, what, what time sinks am I actually like vulnerable to and where can I reclaim some of my time nowadays? Because we're just so, you know, like I, I just earlier today I had went to go eat lunch and I'm at my house is two, two stairs like an upstairs and downstairs. I have my art room upstairs. I was like, I'm leaving my phone here going eat. I went to go eat and like the phone rang and I go like a slave upstairs to go get the <laughs> phone. It's like, I purposely left this fucking thing so I could eat in peace. And here I am chasing it like a slave. So, you know, it's like, you have to, some of these things are deeply ingrained. So I don't know. It's like, I just think it's a dance of trying to find your way in the world and harvesting back the time that you can, because there's so many little digital chains that we have to get away from. Um, and, and I think if you don't get away from them, then they do steal your time and your energy. And it's like, I feel like I want to spend my time kind of creating and doing something that's meaningful to me, something that I love. Uh, I don't want to be, you know, watching your video. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not uh, your video specifically, but you know, just, you know, no, I'm, it's, it's all mediation. I, I don't even want to watch my own shit sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Even my, yeah. I don't want to watch my own video. You know? Yeah. It's yeah. just, it's, it's a matter of that. Yeah. And I find myself with that, um, especially um, an easy one. I, I find this in a lot of avenues in my life, but Bitcoin Twitter, right? Because it's like, it's kind of like that that community. That's where everybody's at. That's where you can find the latest. That's where you can give your input. That's where you can share your work. 
Um, you could do so many things within that community, but also I found it's toxic to a sense in itself, right? Because now you're sitting here and you're swayed by certain opinions and certain things and certain shit corners and certain people that, you know, jump the other side of the fence, like the, you know, the recent Nick Carter thing. And it's like, all of this bullshit means nothing to my everyday being. It means mm-hmm. absolutely zero. But for some reason, whether it's just peer pressure, whether it's just being part of a community, whether it's the responsibility that comes with knowing the information that we know, right? Because we we also, you know, we have to teach people man, do I feel like burnt out just by like loading up the Twitter app. And never mind everything else that's on my fucking phone, but that Twitter app specifically burns me the fuck out. And I like to stay away from it. I, 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 intentional, like you said. I Sometimes I fail, but most time I'm not on that shit. And a lot of people tell me, oh, it's better. You know, you can grow the show better and you could do... I don't give a shit because the show's going to do what the show's going to do. I, I mean, I do this because I have amazing conversations with individuals like you and... That's my treat. And then the benefit on that is that whoever's listening gets to also hear these conversations. So I do the the heavy lifting to get people in the room so that they can hear incredible information. So it's a it's a win for me just to learn, right? And then it's gonna do what it's gonna do. But the 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 shit that I hate is when people tell me that the only way that this show is gonna grow is if I go on Twitter and post about it all the fucking time. That's just not gonna happen. It's just not in my nature. Um so right. I'm with you, man. This stuff is distracting as fuck. No, that's a huge, actually, uh, you really keyed in on a good dichotomy there is that it's, uh, you know, Twitter has this place where there's actually huge value to yourself that you can extract and actually benefit yourself in so many ways. Um, but at the same time, it's this weird, horrible time thing. So you can, you can spend, uh, you know, you can get that huge benefit from using it, but at the same time, then, you know, your time all of a sudden is sunken in four hours of scrolling and now you haven't done what you needed to do for the day. So it can steal from you, but it's also, you see what fucking Twitter wants you to see, you know, like that's the most diabolical thing. It's like, okay, you, you have your feed, which is composed of like the people that you follow. Like, okay, I'm interested in these people. I want to hear what they got to say or whatever. Um, But really you don't see everything that, that all those people post, you see what they, extremely diabolical and, and two, two-sided in the sense that it's, it's like any, t- any, uh, like a knife, you know, the sword, you know, it can, it yeah. can both, it can both kill and it can, and, and it can mend and, and, and save, save you. So, you know, it can yeah. be your defense and in, in the, the dire time, but it can also be, <laughs> be the cause of your death. So it's like the, these, these deep, deep um, dichotomies that we have to navigate to actually get those benefits. It's like without going in the pool, you know, like you can't get any of it, but if you stay too long, you, you know, you become drowned by it. So, um, I mean, in a sense, my, like I said at the beginning, you know, I introduced myself, I said, I do Bitcoin art. Well, yeah. Like in a sense, like I don't actually have a website or really anything that I use to promote my business in a sense. Like I just, Luckily, like every, almost all my art I've done through like just Twitter promotion for the most part. It's like I just post the stuff and people message me and we figure it out or we, I do like these little Bitcoin auctions and stuff. And yep. all that really is strictly Twitter marketing. So as much as I want to hate on the fact that there's this like media Goliath that's like, you know, intertwined in my, my life in some weird way, like there's also so much material benefit that I've been able to harvest and access through it that without it, I don't know if I would have been able to do what I've, I've done in life. So it's just the... And again, it's a technology that you can use to empower yourself, but you can also be enslaved by it in, in many ways. So it's like the, the personal computer 
revolution in many ways, I think, was a little bit of stealing back the power from the corporations because the very early computer uh, renaissance that was going on was very heavily funded by those same intelligence interests we were talking about earlier. So you have like right. the Department of Defense and DARPA and all these things funding the very early Silicon Valley computers, supercomputers that were built for, you know, quarter of a million dollars, half a million dollars, these, these type of experimental computers in very early times that really didn't do that much. But without them, you know, you couldn't you couldn't get to the place where you are today so all that stuff was built almost as a structure of control like the government wants that like have these 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 technologies so that they can secure their control a little better yet at the same time some of the people that were programming these systems realized that no this is a tool for self-sovereignty and personal development and actually um you know through things like Moore's law where you have computing technology become cheaper and, and, and higher processing over time, you know, through time and those factors of things like Moore's law, you're going to reach a, a tipping point where at some point people will be able to have personal computers. It was like a super revolutionary thought in the early, uh, you know, sixties or maybe even the early seventies to say people would have personal computers. You would have something in your home that you can actually type on and look at a screen and, and interact with the world and do stuff like that it was like crazy talk back then, you know, cause like computer yeah. costs half a million dollars. <laughs> so no, yeah. Right. And when you talk about, you know, what we all fundamentally know about cryptography as well and why we find ourselves here and uh, to quote Eric Kaysen, who was on the show before, just, you know, cryptography is that tool of war. Right. And, and it, it, yeah. or, it originated in the war, in the battlefield. But now we get to use it as a as a sword to kind of swing back and, you know, and protect ourselves and protect our sovereignty. So, yeah, that's a great point, point, man. Like I was dialed in just on the Twitter example alone, but you're right. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a way to win, but it's also a way to lose depending on how it's used. Um, yeah. You know, similar to, you know, having a gun, right? Like it's a tool, Absolutely. right? Like, like with a hammer, I could blow my thumb out or I could build a fucking house. Right. And, yes. and the same thing with a gun is I could defend myself and my country and, and my community, or I could shoot myself in the foot. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and tools so. are what tools are what give us the ability to do everything. You know, I've my life has changed dramatically just through the tools that I've been able to access. In fact, that whole article was just called Bitcoin and psychedelics tools for self sovereignty. Like that's what right. that's what they are. And like these are life changing technologies that that every man can access for themselves and actually for free. Like I was talking with somebody today, and just the amazing thing is that. You know, like he, he was saying, like Satoshi MacGyvered together Bitcoin, you know, it's almost like <laughs> from some duct tape, some bubble gum and a string. He threw together like, you know, the most perfect financial system the world's ever seen. But it, like the truth is, is that he really did do that in a way. He t he basically did it for free. He created this most amazing technology that it no one has been able to recreate. Like if you look at, say, Ethereum, which is like got billion dollar entities and interest behind it, throwing all this money to try to create like a working crypto asset system that Bitcoin already is. And this dude like created it all by himself. These people are, have spent all this time, money, energy, decade of time trying to like recreate what Satoshi did for free. All this huge enterprise that's being thrown at this and they still can't create what this guy did. I saw a little meme the other day where it was talking about, uh, uh, it was Tony Stark and the guy was saying, you know, Tony Stark built this technology in a fucking cave in Afghanistan. You know, I built you guys <laughs> a super laboratory. You can't make the same suit that he's got. And like, no, we can't do it. And it's like, that's the same thing with Satoshi and, and Ethereum. Like, no, they, they can't build it. But not only that, like they can't do it with this huge fucking massive army backing them. They can't do what this one sovereign individual did himself for free and gave to the world for free. Chances that Satoshi was on psychedelics. 
<laughs> I have no idea, but man, he's certainly multidisciplinary. I, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's that. that I'd love to find to- the connection. Well, my, my, well, I'm, uh, the connection to Satoshi, we obviously would never know. But like, I sure. bring that up because you also highlighted a lot in your in your piece, um, how and a little bit earlier in this conversation, how you know psychedelics also influences your art and how you work yeah. and how you use it. So like, if we're thinking about Satoshi and and this is his art, right? He's coding, he's putting the system together, this framework together. Like, you know, and then in your piece, you also talk about how you know psychedelics open up the neural pathways in your brain. It's like. I, you know, there's a really good opportunity that, you know, he was assisted by being on the same exact level that you speak about when you talk about creating your art. Oh, I love um, to think about that. It's almost like you, you you could see Satoshi on the beach as the sun's rising with his friends, as the you know the the, the long night of psychedelics has been going on. They've had all these conversations, and yeah, his, his world was opened up, and now he's he's got his mission, and he's going to go forth and do that. I could totally see that, and I love the 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 the, the mind. Uh, games of looking at things like that that's great and i definitely found i i couldn't find obviously we don't know what satoshi did but i definitely found in my article a whole bunch of really neat concrete examples of people that use psychedelics for very specific reasons problem solving reasons they were able to achieve those goals and they actually took the time to to write it up and and those things probably happen so much more often than we would ever know because most people are afraid professionally to speak out about these type of things uh, because of whatever they're, they're worried about their positions or their, the, their, the way that their colleagues will look at them if they admit to these type of, of things. So there's so much of this that probably happens and has inspired so many technologies that we use that we'll, we will just never know. So I was able to find a couple of examples and, and illustrate them specifically in the article. So I really did think that um, if people are interested that, that they'll, they'll um, get some value from actually reading how other individuals, sovereign individuals were able to take something they were passionate about, combine it with psychedelics and then come out to, you know, the other end with, with uh, a viable product that your other, your peers can actually evaluate and say it's good or not like that. That's fucking amazing. You know? Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's piece the rest of this conversation in these two parts here. So what I want to I, I first want to talk to you about, I want you to explain how you use psychedelics to improvise your art and, and, and combine those two things, right? Art and psychedelics. And then at the end of this conversation, I want actionable advice in your opinion for the listeners and anybody who just wants to either do more or actually give this a shot here. And no, this isn't medical advice or this isn't go do it. This is just actionable advice because I'm not the only one that's, that's you know, curiosity has peaked here. So how do you Absolutely. blend psychedelic and you, use, and you use it with when it comes to your creativity and your art? Okay, this, this is actually a great question and obviously something that, that, um, that I can... I feel qualified to speak on since it's my own life and, <laughs> and experiences. So yeah, that, that's absolutely something we can jump into. So as I mentioned, you know, I've been doing art for a very long time and I've been doing psychedelic art for a very long time. So the connection between psychedelics and the creative expression that I'm able to bring is almost like you can, the psychedelic gives you a vision. I like to say like create, create high edit sober so the psychedelics give you the vision and you can you can go through and actually see these things in a holistic manner you can kind of get your mind wrapped around them in a way that you couldn't otherwise and you can kind of uh, build on these these visual cues that are kind of fed into your brain through these technological interfaces and 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 leverage them and kind of try to bring that back so i'll i'll use them in a way to to get the vision initially and then 
like later on I'll, I'll i'll go in and clean it up okay like this is the this is the broad spectrum of way that it looks and then later on you're like okay i gotta move all these little pixels for four hours because this is not exactly positioned right so that you know i don't want to do on the psychedelic but you know like you're, you're happy doing it at the other time because you're actually like okay we're, we're fucking getting this actually to look the way that the experience looked looked to you in that initial phase. So I have that aspect of it where I kind of sometimes will, will use it as a big picture uh, type tool where I'm using it to actually get the vision that I want to translate back to the world. And, and so that's, I think, advanced use of psychedelics is trying to get something from the experience and then bring it back into the world, not just get something and like have it lost within yourself. Cause a lot of times people will take psychedelics, have a very epiphany type experience, but they don't really know how to leverage that. And they just like, it comes and goes. And then just the world kind of beating on you, it beats down that psychedelic uh, uh, vibrance sometimes. So if you, if you're not expert at like kind of bringing that into your life that uh, you can lose those things. So I think that that's one way that I use it, but then other times if I'm lucky and this isn't something that you, that I have, um, like a specific method for doing it's kind of one of those things where you have to set up the conditions for it to occur and if it does cool and if not like no problem you go where the experience takes you there's always benefit to you but you can't like you know it's hard when you hang expectations on the experience but if you can get into like a flow state where you're actually just like working on whatever it is that you want to work on I find you can do a huge amount of work in a short amount of time. If you get that focus and you get that flow going and you actually spend the time in the psychedelic experience on the actual work that you're doing. Um, I've found huge benefits from that as well. So I find both things like one where you're just kind of whole, like big picturing it. And then one where you're actually going into the details and fully like, like creating the work and melding and molding and shaping and forming and, and actually like bringing it into the world, like directly from the psychedelic experience. You can have a long night and do like seven months of work, you know? Yeah. So it's like, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. So it's worth it to kind of set up the, set up the, possibilities for greatness and then if you get it cool and if not like you can't you know you can't cry about it it just is what it is <laughs> but i think there's ways that you can set up yourself for those type of experiences so some of the ways that i found and i did talk about this for the first time in the article um, i've told people individually this uh, but i never really kind of put it out there for large uh, scale people but i think one of the neat ways to do it for creativity um like if you're doing it for the psychedelic experience, sometimes taking like a large amount all at once is cool because it like hits you very dramatically. And it's like a very definite shift from your, your normal waking consciousness into the psychedelic like area. It's like a very definite, very um, quick in, in the sense of like, Whoa, I'm tripping here. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like where you go from like, I'm not sure if I'm feeling anything to, Ooh, okay. We're, we're definitely in something. So instead of do, doing like a high dose all at once, you actually break up the dosage into smaller amounts. So the first thing I'd say, if anybody's interested in using psychedelics, the best thing to do is try to find some, um, that the people you're getting from actually think it's something special, you know, because like, there's, there's always different stuff and you kind of want to get something that's, that the people you're getting it from consider to be something special and you want to get it from someone you trust. There's all, all that, all that there. But the benefit is if you try to get like say one or two tabs, just have your experience, it doesn't give you a lot of familiarity with the material that you have. If you try to get say 10 or 20 of them, then you'll have enough of this material to actually become familiar with it and adept at using it. You'll understand how much a certain amount of this exact 
stuff does to you. And by having that understanding, say take like a quarter, take a half, those type of things give you a very good feeling for what it is. And you're not worried about, oh, I've only got two of these. So I can't like, I, I can't waste it. You know, it has to yeah. be all like all my hopes and dreams are tied into these two hits of LSD. You know? <laughs> it's like, it, you, or like, that's the good thing about mushrooms. If say you have a harvest of them, like, okay, now you've got a whole bunch of these mushrooms. The fact of the matter with mushrooms is they, each mushroom can be different potency. So like, you know, like one grown right next to the other one, like for some reason, like this one will be very strong and the other one won't. It's just like a weird, like happenstance of nature. So I think with mushrooms, one of the cool um, ways to combat that is you can actually grind them. So you take whatever your harvest is, or, you know, oh, I got an ounce or a half ounce. You could just actually grind all that in a coffee grinder and then it becomes homogenous and it, and it's not, it's like you know exactly what this amount of it does okay and you want to scale so okay with mushrooms you always need to weigh it is another piece of advice you don't want to just take a, a an unknown amount because again a certain mushroom like right next to another one their densities will be different so you, you know one is three grams one is five grams and you, you have no clue you just looked at them they look the same so you do need a scale um for mushrooms so i i think like having some material that you're familiar with is also key to setting these experiences up for winning in those senses so um, my method there is once you once you have something good and you know what it is if you take a quarter of a dose say every hour or 45 minutes so instead of taking a whole dose all at once you, you divide it into four and you just take it over say this period of two hours or something so this kind of puts you into a psychedelic mind state much easier so instead of that heavy shock of just coming in off a high dose and you're, you're just okay now i'm in this experience you kind of dip your feet into the pool and go in gently. And by doing this, it, it kind of helps for the creative aspect. So if you're going for, for that psychedelic life changing, you know, I want the ego death type thing that may be a different type goal than doing it for creative problem solving or something like that, where I think the dose management is going to be much more critical. So those type of things I think are, are beneficial. Also setting up your, your set and setting is super critical. So you want to set up your time and space where you're not going to be bothered. You're not going to have people interrupting the experience. Like for example, if you have your phone sitting right next to you and it's like not on airplane mode, you could get a call from your loved one that says, Hey, like I hurt myself. I need to ride to the hospital. Can you come right away? Well. And now you're in a weird situation <laughs> where it's like, you probably can't even drive, but you're going to feel like responsible for helping out your friends. So you need to like set these boundaries where it's like, Hey, like I have a couple hours to myself here. I'm putting, you know, I like, I'm not going to allow for these um, intrusions into the space. So you want to set your set and setting in a place where you have some level of control over the environment and you've kind of pre-selected things that you, you like, if you have tools of your trade, whatever that may be, if you're doing it for, for art, then you, you want to have all your art tools there so that you if the thing arises for you and you do get into one of these flow states, you're ready and you rock and roll. And if not, Hey, you just trip out for the night. And, you know, sometimes that's valuable too. I actually had a, an experience recently where I had set, set it up and I had invited some, some friends to come along. And a lot of times I don't do that. A lot of times I'm kind of a solo tripper because like you have full control over everything. Um, sure. But when I had some friends there, I kind of had, had some distractions. So originally I was hoping, Oh, maybe I'll take, take the psychedelic and I'll like see what my next art project is, for example. And, um, because I had brought my friends, I, you know, I spent a lot of time interacting with them and not actually doing any kind of art thinking or things like that. It was like a totally different type of experience. So I felt like, like sad or something and, and a little like, Oh man, I had set up this, this thing because I wanted to do this, but it went in a different direction for me uh, because I had these expectations that were attached to this experience. Like, Hey, I, I want this from this. Um, uh, 
but number one, I didn't properly set the thing up for that. But number two, like, even though during that experience, I didn't get that vision that I was, I didn't even set up the space where I could have it necessarily. Like I didn't have, have like, like do that incorrectly, but the experience was so fulfilling and so energizing and so clearing that just as soon as it was over and I kind of got back into my own space and I was by myself, like just the vision started flowing in. Like I started like getting exactly what I had hoped for and what I had put all these intentions and hopes, hopes on the, the experience for. And even though I didn't get it directly from the trip, like what the trip did for me allowed me to actually access the space that I needed when I wasn't even on the psychedelic at all. So, and it's like, it's, that was just very recently. And over the past two weeks, I've just been getting these major like, okay, this is what it is. And I you know, have taken it from a pencil sketch and I started doing 3d modeling and, and I've basically been building like pyramids using equations and math. And it's like loving it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's all amazing, bro. So, um, how, how, how long is, is a, a usual trip? I guess is the easy question. It's like a few hours. Sure. Is this like a long all nighter thing? Oh, that's a good question. So I yeah. like with LSD, I would say your trip is usually going to be in the like eight hour range and with mushrooms, probably closer to like five to six hours. And again, it's going to be dose dependent and also dependent on what you ate that day and your own personal body chemistry and things like that. But those are good baselines to know. But more importantly than the fact that they last a certain amount of time is the fact that they they have periods within that time that are, are relevant. So at the beginning of the, the psychedelic experience, and these are relatively similar for, for both psychedelics is that you'll have a period that's kind of the come up where you're like leading up to the peak of the experience. And that will usually take, uh, you know, several hours, like an hour or two, the peak will also last for, you know, maybe an hour or two. And then there's a come down period, which is the remainder of the experience. And each one of those periods of the experience can be leveraged in different ways. But then there's also underlying rhythms of psychedelics where there's a uh, saying, they come in waves. So you'll have like a period where it's like, you feel super, super duper tripping. Like you're like, Whoa, I'm like way, 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 way out there. And then, you know, a very short time later, you're like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm back to base. I'm like, I'm not tripping at all. And then like a few minutes later, you're like, woo, okay, wait, no, I guess I, I, guess I still am. <laughs> so it's like these waves are like kind of underlying rhythms that will also happen within the experience. So you kind of have to tune into all these different things that are going on and just understand like that, yeah, you got to kind of flow with it. And, you know, there's cycles to it. And um, even though there's time, and one thing that happens to a lot of people is they'll have an experience where they'll be so far into the psychedelic experience and that they kind of lose a sense of time. So they'll, they'll get worried that, Oh man, I'll be tripping like this forever. I feel like how, like, how can I go to work tomorrow at the end of the weekend? Like I'll never be normal again. Like, just, <laughs> like they feel like, you know, they're going to be stuck there. So I think like having a sense of time is also a good boundary. So I always look at the time when I take psychedelics so that I know like, Hey, this is, this is when I started. So like, it's going to stop probably around here. So if I'm like super far into it and like time is totally dissolved and I've dissolved and you know, the world's a different place. If you can actually locate on the time and you understand that, Hey, this time means that you're still within this and everything's cool and just, you know, ride it out. And it's like, like those type of things are very, very key. And yeah, I think there is a sense of no going back though with psychedelics, just like Bitcoin. I said in the article, like once you commit to it you can't just be like oh whoops i like changed my mind now so yeah like once you've once you've eaten it or once you've taken the psychedelic it's just like sending a bitcoin transaction once that shit confirmed pretty much once you sent that to the network it's it's out there you know there's no taking it back you know like your bitcoin is sent so like you have to be sure by the time that you've done this that you've set your things up right you've committed to it and you're ready for this 
That that does nothing to ease my anxiety. <laughs> no, right, but that's no, what it is. That's what yeah. it is. You know, you have to understand. Take the buy the ticket, take the ride. You know, there's no yeah. going back from this, and the only way out is through. That's the hero's journey. You know, yes, right. it's it's yes, there's fear here, and yes, it's going to be challenging, but there's going to be benefit that you can reap for yourself that you cannot gain if you don't go on this quest. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And, but again, and not everybody it, goes on these quests, you know, like psychedelics aren't for everybody. This yeah. is a very personal decision. Each person has to like look at these things and make the decisions for themselves. And, and every time in our lives is not equal. So you have sometimes in your lives that it's going to be more appropriate for you than others. You know, like life is cyclical. Sometimes it just throws everything it's got at you and shit's just really hard for you. That may not be the weekend to get into it. <laughs> you know, wait till, wait till your life is a little balanced. You're feeling okay. Unless you're specifically doing it to address how you should deal with all this shit that life is throwing with at you. You know, if like you're aware that this is what it is and like you're going into it to address these certain things, that's a lot different than just saying like, ah, shit's bad, but I hope this goes good anyways. You know, like that, that type of stuff you have to. You know, yeah. And you highlighted for the, the last 10 minutes or so, you gave a lot of checks and balances too that make the, the journey uh, a lot more, not only safer, but a, a smoother ride, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah. All right, Fracto. I got one question and then one last section that I want to cover here. Uh, one question is, is we've talked about a lot of the beautiness of it. Have you ever had an actual bad trip and what was that like? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I have had what I would, ter- I guess, term a bad trip. And the funny thing is that I like to tell people, really, there's no such thing as a bad trip. Like for most people, like if you end up in one of those bad trip situations, the real bad thing is that we just don't have a lot of framework right now in our society for handling that. So like somebody's freaking out on LSD or mushrooms, like the, they call the hospital or 911, you get cops involved and like medical professionals tying you down to a stretcher and like giving you IVs. And like, is that really the appropriate response to a psychedelic crisis? No, it's actually not. So one of the things that I hope is that we'll eventually come into a space where we actually have psychedelic crisis intervention as something that's integrated at like every university and things like that, where we actually have places that you can bring people because those bad trips and quote experiences are actually a very heightened, uh, heightened state where you can reap a lot of benefit. Like a lot of those really intense, super scary trips. Like those are ones that really people can come out the other end so much better from if they're managed properly. Like if you actually have somebody that's knowledgeable and can, can walk you through this hell that you're going through in the, in the, appropriate way rather than kind of leading you deeper into hell like they lead you out of it um that gives you the most opportunity for for growth and 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 benefit from these substances so we do a great disservice to our society by just not understanding them well enough to help people out in these these bad trip situations but i definitely i have like i had probably like the bad trip of all bad trips for people like i i had um a period of my life where I was kind of convinced that because LSD um, doesn't do any organic damage to your body, like it just couldn't harm you. So I was kind of trying to prove it to myself. I don't know what, but like I kind of went over the deep end with like trying to eat like as much LSD as I could over like a short amount of time. And like, basically I spent an eight month time where I was pretty much like hospitalized in a mental hospital and I had eaten just like ungodly amounts of LSD, like not all at once, but like over, over a few weeks just kept like going deep you know deep into it and at some point like my brain actually just 
broke from that (laughs) and like i actually was fully psychotic and like so they brought me into the hospital and like you know all all my paperwork said patient unable to sign and like they kept me there for a full month and i was like fully tripping out and like then they started feeding me thorazine and all kinds of weird like anti fully tripping like through through the whole period and it's after like a month or two they're like okay well your insurance ran out so you gotta go it's like (laughs) you can't pay us anymore so you're not better but have a great time. You can't, can't, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. And so like, I ended up like uh, leaving the area where I had lived. Cause they were like, Oh, you know, like he's, he's a danger here. Uh, you know, he can't, can't be, you know, by the people that he knows. And I like, I was like seriously in a crazy position. I was actually like on probation at the same time. So it's like on probation and in the hospital on like this LSD overdose. And it was just the most wildest thing. I actually wrote all this up um, on an old mushroom forum uh, that I used to be on called the shroomery. So I have like this really long thread that basically goes through a whole book length of retelling of, of this epic story. So um, I'll send you a link later. So you have that, but yeah, I've definitely had a, a, a challenging trip for sure and it was it was wild actually they had told me um at the time like the doctors in that psych, uh, psychiatric hospital had told me at one point that i would like never hold a job again and i would never be able to read again so like when i got out of the hospital one of the first things that was important to me was like trying to read again so yeah. like i remember i was like like trying to like read a book as soon as possible and i think i, I was able to finish a book within that time you know still still in the middle of that eight month uh, uh, experience just like towards the end of it and that was very empowering in the sense that like these doctors told me you will never do this and I was able to just do it by sheer willpower so it's like you know you can't have these people mediating your existence and telling you like what you can and cannot do um, because a lot of times you can do things that you wouldn't realize that you, you can do so yeah I've been through it man <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. I came and, out the other end, and I still believe it, and I think it's something strong, and I think that those problems were actually caused by myself and, and poor, poor planning, and just my—I was very young, and and you just live and learn sometimes, and that was not the—that wasn't the fault of the uh, psychedelics. That was the improper use, and I, you know, that's the thing is these things teach you. Uh, it like they'll slap you you know you can't you can't get too out of hand with it because it's like you know with some some drugs you know you can get become addicted they they, they ruin your whole life you know everything's like i gotta smoke crack every day or something like that like these are not going to be that type of a substance they don't enslave you in that way uh, first of all there's tolerance issues that kind of make it so that you can't just do it every day but also that type of irresponsible use is penalized by the system itself which is again just like bitcoin if you're irresponsible with the way you use it you're penalized there's consequences for doing this shit wrong it's important pay attention yeah no that makes a ton of sense i was thinking the same thing i was like so your bad trip wasn't actually the the what you were taking it was how you took it the abuse they yeah. did to yeah makes a ton of fucking sense and uh yeah for all the, those doctors that happen to be listening i mean from not being able to read ever again to writing one of the most masterful pieces that i've read in a long time i, I think wow. you've come a long way good sir <laughs> wow man good, good perspective love that thank you yeah no nah, so if they listen and go check out the article it's amazing um yeah. <laughs> uh, the one part here we don't have to go deep in the weeds i just once again actionable items here but um as as you stated earlier and as we all know the source of where you're gathering stuff is is very important so most Bitcoiners are probably wondering, hey, I'm sovereign as fuck. I could grow this myself. What would be your mm-hmm. advice to growing or starting or going down that rabbit hole? Okay. So the really amazing thing is there's a lot of um there's a lot of uh how to grow mushroom information on the internet and it just gets better and better and better nowadays. Uh the fact of the matter is is that like 
one of the secrets that's not well known is that you can actually do it outdoors a lot easier than you can do it indoors. So when you're mm -hmm. growing mushrooms indoors, it's a very like um, sterility intense environment. You have to like be super clean about how you're doing things. And um, I've found that like when you bring it outside into nature, there's some like there's some kind of ecology that happens and and you know if you're able to set up the conditions correctly outside it's actually um, just like gardening and it's just I, I would definitely um, suggest that individuals look up a thread on the shroomery and it's called hot for teacher and it's a uh, it's just a it's probably I don't know how old at this point but it's just the guy that 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 uh, teaches how to how he grew some golden teacher mushrooms on uh, in a little outdoor bed. He uses some black cow uh, manure he got from Home Depot. I don't think that that's actually a legitimate um, uh, way to do it. Uh, if you actually live by any kind of dairy farm, there's something called a manure separator. And if you can find like the separated manure stuff, it's like fucking gold. Uh, this is one of the things that Paul T Stamets t uh, had in his mycelium running book. And he only had like a paragraph or two about this, but this separated manure stuff is actually unbelievable. And they, they have it at dairy farms. So if you can actually get some of that, you can actually just throw that stuff on the floor, mix in some little mushroom spawn. You just wait two weeks. And, you know, it basically does itself. The creating the mushroom spawn is the most difficult part, but it's very cool because it's kind of like techie and labby, which is very like in line with Bitcoin and DIY stuff. Like, so anybody that's set up a Bitcoin node, you have the same temperament that you need to grow mushrooms. It's something you need patience for. You have to do things right. If you don't, you know, do things correctly it don't work but if you do things correctly it's fucking easy as hell repeatable stuff and like i said earlier it's like a fifth grader can do this stuff so it's certainly something that's within your power so if it's something that you're interested in i think it's a neat way to go uh, because it gives you a lot of avenues and it gives you a lot of control over the experience and also understand that if you do grow some mushrooms each time you grow them the stuff that you grow them on each little species and um a lot of the like it's very variable so what you grow one time may not be the same as what you grow the, the next time so just you know each each batch has its own tendency to be self-similar in its own ways so you just it's always uh, and there's ways to limit that as well so like with mushrooms you can do things like cloning versus just taking spores when you inoculate from spores it's something called multi-spore and that's much more of a crapshoot like just hoping you never know what you get versus if you do something called cloning where that's where you've already grown some mushrooms and you actually take one that's your best specimen, either the biggest one or the fastest growing, and you can actually break it in half and do a tissue clone into some Petri dishes. And then everything that you grow should be like a clone of this really awesome mushroom that you grew. So there's neat, there's levels to it just like with Bitcoin and um, none of it's scary. It's all just a little, just like anything in life. A lot of this is hidden by, technology uh, hidden by vocabulary so you read the words and you're not familiar with some of it and it seems like oh inoculation and mycology and substrate and this and that dude a lot of this stuff is nothing it's just substrate it's just dirt it's just like you know like like this stuff is just hidden through vocabulary to make it seem intimidating but it's really not difficult like any of us can do this stuff just like in bitcoin <laughs> yes absolutely yeah just like in bitcoin that's an awesome place to end here, Fracto. Um, yeah, if we can get those links um, to yeah, the, the Shumari. Uh, did I say that right? Shun? Yeah, Shumari. Yeah, Shumari. Yeah. Uh, I put it here for the listeners. If you guys are interested, this is not advice. <laughs> this is just if you're if you feel bullish enough and you're curious like I am, uh, and you're you know in the groove to get into sovereign technology, uh, as Fracto has highlighted so many times in this episode. Definitely check out the links in the show notes here. Uh, Fracto, please let the listeners know wherever it is you want them to go, where they can see your art, where they can read the the, the article, and anywhere else you want to send them, please. 
Oh, beautiful. Okay, yeah. Well, like I said, I'll send you the link for the article. That article is on Citadel 21. It's a great magazine. It's a Bitcoin-only project that's run through by Hall and Not. And you actually uh, mentioned him at the beginning. I definitely uh, was glad that he connected us because this is great to actually come come on something like this with you and, and get a chance to talk about these ideas because I think a lot of that is um, it, it comes out and just the, the back and forth of trying to think this thing through with, with other interested, like-minded people that we can really come to a, a lot of understanding and really get, get a, get a grasp on this. So I do appreciate you having me on to, to, to talk this through with you. So it's a lot of value to me. So, okay. So Citadel 21 has the article. I do have some articles in Bitcoin magazine, just about my art. Um, Cause a lot of my art has a lot of detail. So I'll send you some links to those as well. Pretty much the only place that anybody will be able to find me is on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Fractal Encrypt. Definitely come link up. Uh, if you're interested in any of this, shoot me a DM. I do love to chat about this stuff. And, uh, you know, send me a message or whatever. Uh, I'm into it. Um, and like like you said earlier, a lot of this is not necessarily advice. This is just what has worked for me. Um, so everybody, you know, your mileage may vary. What works for me may not work for you. So you definitely have to consider that. So, and you know, it's just, this is the sovereign journey. And I hope everybody that's, that's here with us has uh, got some value from, from the conversation because I certainly did. Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot, Fractor. I appreciate it. That's a good disclaimer there. And uh, Zoom, if you're listening, go fuck yourself. <laughs> For sure. Because this is, I've done these over 80 times and this is the first time y'all try to hate on the conversation by giving me this fucking timer. Uh, but <laughs> but anyways, uh, yeah, incredible. That's how it goes. Uh, they try to suppress the they try to suppress the info. They, they waited for this episode. Yeah, that's exactly what it yep. is. They're out to get us. Uh, I know, it's but, dangerous. But Fractal, friend of... A friend of the show, good sir. I, I hope this is the last time you come on. Um, definitely reach back out, especially as I go down this rabbit hole of exploration here. Um, because just in this little time we spent together, I've, my brain is already rolling and I've already gotten so much from this convo. So once more, man, thanks a lot. This won't be the last time we speak, I'm sure. I appreciate you. Yo, respect and much love. Thank you again for having me. Absolutely. All right, folks, that wraps up another episode. You know where to find us. If you got any value from this show, Fractal gets a 5% split of this show as well. So make sure you oh, check yeah. out Podcasting 2.0 apps, stream us some sats. If you got any value from this, which I'm sure you did. Uh, if you want to catch this 4K content, check us out on Bitcoin TV, Bitcoin products only. That's how we roll here. Uh, and if you haven't got to the Bitcoin standard of media yet and you're still on Spotify and you're still on Apple, don't know what the hell you're waiting for, but... You can give us a thumbs up. You leave us a comment. Give us a review. That actually helps us float up and more people could get the signal that we're trying to provide here with the show. That wraps up episode 77 here. I'll catch y'all next week. Later.